Good to know. Hey, greetings. Happy uh, Thursday, traders, before a long Memorial Day weekend. And I am Samantha LaDuke, founder of LaDukeTrading.com, joined by Denise Schull of Rethink Group. I couldn't be more delighted. I was just sharing with her that I have had many trading friends who have said they have devoured her work and followed her, and some have even used her services, and it has helped unlock a lot of their potential, so I couldn't be more happy. And I want to, uh, to have her on this show, which is basically my webinar interview, um, also podcast, so a little housekeeping first and foremost. Um, this is my Women in Trading and Finance series, and then it will be housed on my YouTube station, which is Leduc Trading. It is also up down here on a playlist. Um, it is also going to be a podcast, which is going to be found on Apple, Spotify, and Audible. So I encourage you to have a listen, and uh, then definitely thumbs up, comments, all of that good jazz. But let me just do a little bio for her. I think this definitely merits uh, a more detailed bio because I think of her as trading psychologist to the stars <laughs> because the traders that she has helped um, are, you know, make impactful, um, big, you know, money-making decisions. Also athletes, um, keynote speaker at conferences and the, and, and the like. But she's really performance, you know, peak performance coach and strategy decision advisor. So we're very fortunate to have her um, share some of her methodology and maybe some stories and maybe give a little bit of insight also on why there are uh, not as many women in trading and finance, which is one of the reasons why I do this, um, this series is because I really want to draw attention uh, to the wonderful voices of women and how to elevate, uh, inspire, attract, support, uh, level up the playing field for women in trading and finance. So uh, thank you, Denise, so much for joining. And just to give a little background, you have definitely been, um, you know, on Wall Street for quite a long time. I would say 1994 <laughs> yeah. is impressive track record, you know. <laughs> And even, um, I'm a late bloomer. When you, you probably, those who um, got on the email list know that she comes from electronic trading firms first in Chicago, then trading at Schoenfeld Securities before she was recruited to move to New York to run her own desk at Sharp Capital. The Shoal Method, which we're going to talk about, um, and we'll chat about all kinds of things, based on modern psychoanalysis and the science of anticipatory effect. It's also in her 2012 book, Market Mind Games, A Radical Psychology of Investing, Trading, and Risk, which I would say is very sophisticated. Um, and it has been reviewed as one of the best of its genre and a veritable result, a stone of trading psychology. So without further ado, thank you, Denise, so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. Are you kidding? Happy to be here. So I first saw you on, uh, you know, Real Vision, um, when they launched, and I was very excited uh, to kind of hear your approach to uh, trader psychology because I don't do trader psychology with my clients. Mm. To me, I find it to be a very personal experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, part of that is just, I guess, privacy, kind of farm mm -hmm. girl, farm girl quiet. Like, I just want to <laughs> do it myself and figure it out myself. And All then... Right. And people who are looking for advice, I'm like, honestly, I'm at first, this is such a personal experience and to spend the time that you do um, with traders to find out, you know, and their blockages, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's your, um, your passion. You have from, I guess, a while now found that you want to solve this puzzle yeah. and my puzzle is the market edge. You know, what's the market edge? It's always changing. It's that to right. me puzzle. So what has kind of driven your, your curiosity in this space? Because it has motivated you for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sort of funny. I was talking to someone else about this just the other day. And in some ways, the, the guy that got me into trading, who had been a floor trader for a long time, and who admittedly I dated for some period of time, but then we became really good friends. And I can't even remember, I guess when I started trading, we were friends at that point. But 
he had told me these stories of, you know, like making millions of dollars on the floor, even in the 90s, 80s, 90s. And then like one afternoon losing a half a million dollars. And I was like, what? Like, how could that happen? And so, you know, in some ways I've just been trying to answer that question, really. Um, you know, okay. how do people do, people who are competent in the market do like out of the blue, and I'm using air quotes, insane things and lose bunches of money. So did you, did, have you figured it out? <laughs> I have, I have. Um, and, the, and the weird thing is I figured it out sort of roundabout. So while I was trading, you know, I used to read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator yes. and all the Market Wizards books. And yep. I can even remember sometimes going home on Friday night in Chicago, even though I was like 32 and single and opening my own bottle of Chardonnay and reading Market Wizards because I was just so fascinated by it all. Um, but then actually it was this like indirect thing where the small Institute of Modern Psychoanalysis wanted to publish my master's thesis because it was neuropsychoanalysis, brain science and psychoanalysis. And I was like, you can't do that. You're going to look like idiots. It's 10 years old, but I'll update it because it'll be really fun to be published in an academic journal. And then Antonio Damasio showed you had to have a motion to make a decision. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what? How can that be? It's always take the emotion out of it, control the emotion. And you, if you did that, you couldn't make a decision. I was like, huh. And I was literally having this conversation with a trader at Starbucks near the then World Trade Center in Chicago. Like, I'm like, wait, like, how do we square this up? And he's like, you've got to write an article about this. Cause, and I was like, who's going to publish an article by me? But anyway, fast forward, that article got published and people started to call and wanted coaching. And I was in psychoanalytic training. So I asked the psychoanalyst if they would help me, you know, help these clients who were, who were coaching. And really soon into it, I got this client who lost money every morning. It can make it back in the afternoon. And like, he was successful. He was on the floor of the board of trade. He would basically lose like eight to $10,000 every morning, come back, be break even, and then make eight to $10,000 late in the afternoon. He's like, this is crazy. And I'm like, yep, this is crazy. Similar, different crazy than my friend, but crazy. And so just because I said, well, tell me your life story. And he proceeds to tell me about being born to, you know, a teenage mother who was on welfare and having nothing and then being, you know, virtually adopted by the track coach in grade school and then becoming a really fast runner almost making the Olympics, getting a scholarship to college. And I'm like, I don't know, sort of sounds like your life story. <laughs> like get yourself, you're way behind the eight ball, you know, get even, do well. And he was like, oh my gosh. But I know, I know traders like that who have made and lost millions. And I do mean rags to riches where they're multimillionaires and then it's all gone. And then they do it again. Oh my God, they do it again. And then it's all gone, but it's over years, not hours. <laughs> well, you know, I had a consult with someone yesterday who is actually coming to my workshop. And so I, I do these individual consults with him and we were sort of like, that. like he's done really well, but he had a day a couple of weeks ago where he just totally blew it, you know, and lost a whole month in an afternoon. Now at this point, you know, I can often ask just a handful of questions and see what's going on. Uh, basically, the human brain predicts based on our past experience and particularly predicts feelings. So it like in this trader's experience, the one I talked to, I think it was yesterday. He's, I said, okay, so I know when someone fights the trend, which is what he was doing in a, you know, one day trend, whatever, you know, markets falling, buying, buying, buying. Um, I know that most of the time they're trying to prove they're smart to somebody because you have this feeling like why you're doing it, you know, oh, I can see the turn. Like I'm such a genius. I can really see it. You know? And then you buy the falling knife and then it falls a little bit further and you're like, oh damn, you know, and then you got to buy it more, but like, I'm sure I'm right. 
and they dig in on being right, which is what my original friend did. Why? Because in both cases, and this is the case for everybody, but in both of these cases, they had very critical, very know-it-all fathers that you can imagine they never got any respect from. Okay, so validation is missing. Yeah, and then they're trying to prove themselves worthy by being the genius who finds the turd. So do you think that there are, I hear this all the time and I hate to put people in categories, but the ones who have fear of missing out because they are afraid of being wrong um, versus, you know, uh, just that money that's just all about the money. Do you simplify? It's never all about the money. It's layered. So I always think of it in a pyramid, you know, and there's like the superficial well, I don't want to lose the money and I do want to make the money. And then, you know, but under that is, well, I'll feel smart if I do and stupid if I don't. And under that is, well, if I feel stupid, do I seem stupid? You know, will I be embarrassed to those who know I make the money or not? Even if it, no one will know, but you imagine, you know, somebody would know. And then there's the like, then there's always a layer underneath that. Like, why does it matter? You know, I will ask someone, and then what? And oftentimes they have a hard time answering, but okay, you miss out, then what happens? Well, uh, uh, I'm gonna feel stupid. Okay, so you feel stupid. So then perceived what as stupid, that's even- Well, yeah, well, that's usually kind of, if I think, you know, to the extent that there are sort of general layers, it tends to go, feel stupid, seen as stupid. You know, those tend to be kind of two different layers. Like I feel stupid is one thing. You think I'm stupid is a whole nother thing, right? And so they tend, it tends to be layered. And they, and usually if you have one, you have the other, you know? I mean, not always, not always, but in, in this kind of stuff, by the way, and it's important to say that is like a fingerprint. So, you know, it sounds all similar, right? Person mm -hmm. to person. And, but any one person's version of it is like their fingerprint. It's slightly different than the next person's version of it. So you talk about that in your book a lot and uh, the fractals repetitively playing out our emotions. Explain that, please. Well, so- I like the fingerprint? Well, sort of. So, I mean, basically psychoanalysis is said for a hundred and some years that we learn kind of patterns growing up and then we have a tendency to repeat them. And that happens like kind of around our self-image, by the way, like we expect to be treated a certain way, you know, in a situation with a person of authority or power, and then we react a certain way and then we create the same circumstance. So psychoanalysis has said that since the days of Freud. Um, you know, at the same time, fractal patterns exist in nature, right? Like broccoli is a fractal like the little tiny stalk of broccoli is basically the same as the whole head just a different size or scale is to use their words well when i was writing my book i started thinking like wait a minute we learn these kind of emotional scenarios when i wrote my book i might not have called them that but when we're a kid about who we are and where we belong and how and then we play them out in adulthood. Well, that's the same as like the little stalk of broccoli and the whole head of broccoli. So I really do think our psyches are fractal and that we have some pattern that repeats itself at different scale. Now, as it turns out in the decade now, since I wrote my book, the neuroscience has really shown that we're always predicting based on past experience and always predicting how we're gonna feel and it is indeed based on our past experience. So that's how the fractal evolves, right? Um, I think there's somebody else in the world who said psyches are fractal, but I'm not really quite sure anyone else has, but it seems obvious to me. So the recognition of loss versus wins in the trading world, what do we hold on to much more powerfully? Like how does... Well, generally people take losses as much more critical than they take wins as complimentary. So they take it personally? 
Yeah, I mean, How do you generally. fix that? <laughs> well, you get people to talk about what the real feelings are about. Honestly, there's a, you know, in a culture of positive thinking, and granted now the idea of toxic positivity is finally coming forward. But I mean, for the better part of the past 15 years, you know, you weren't really allowed to say you're afraid or you're frustrated or you're disappointed because it's going to make things worse. Never mind that most of us were trained not to say those things. But the truth is, if you can admit what you're really feeling and why you're really feeling it and understand it, you usually can put more of the past in the past and be more in the present. And if a trader is able to be more in the present there, it's easier for them to understand that, look, you know, I'm only going to win 40, 50, 60% of the time. You know, it's not, it's, it's better than baseball, but it's similar, you know, I'm not going to hit the ball. And like baseball players don't worry about not hitting the ball. 70% of the time and if they're hitting the ball 30% of the time, they're killing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure none of those hitters like it, but they know if they're hurting it, hitting it 30% of the time, they're like superstars. And that's very similar. Trading is a performance sport. Totally. Totally. It's, I mean, it's physical, mental, emotional, your physical energy matters. And if you're tired, you you will misperceive risk. Usually not to your benefit. You'll underappreciate the risk when you're tired. So you'll do stupid mm -hmm. things. It will seem like, oh, this isn't that big a deal. I'll just take this trade. You know, and maybe you don't lose very much, but use a little and then you're annoyed. And then you'll take another trade to just make it back. And, you know, and then you don't make it back, of course, then you're really annoyed. Then you, you know, this all started just because you were fatigued and, and didn't really appreciate the risk in the first trade. Do traders think in terms of the risk? In other words, um, I have, you know, very few like truisms in trading. And my number one is don't risk more than you're willing to lose. Well, that's for sure. But that's not necessarily a like that's I don't find that to be a common thought. <laughs> um, they, 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 there are some really outsized bets or not expecting it to go against um, and, and that's when the mistakes can, can compound. So I've, I've been told that's too conservative a belief, right? You can't, you can't get there, get wherever there is without making really swing for the fence kind of things. So for me, that's just a truism in life. Don't risk more than you're willing to lose in life or in trading. And if that's farm girl, I don't care. That's really comfortable for me. <laughs> but I'm, I, I don't find that that's common. Well, it's actually a, it's a actually very logical and it, it relates to, you know, what a professional portfolio manager would call asymmetric risk. I mean, you know, maybe your odds are one in five, you know, that you would lose a lot, but the, but the lot is everything. Well, okay. You know, if it's only 20% odds, Statistics might say you should take it, but the, the downside to losing everything is too much, so you can't. So, you know, like if the risk is death, you can't take it, <laughs> you know? Um, it doesn't matter that the odds are low, like, it, you know, and people well, don't appreciate that. I think I, I'm probably referencing more individuals who start their own business or have their own trading book, not necessarily those with a compliance manager or officer on their shoulder. So there's a right. little bit different regards. Do you have, I mean, your, your client base, do you have individual traders that come in um, versus uh, shops, you know, that say, I want you to work with these traders because their book isn't as strong? Like what, what? What, what's your primary? Well, at this point in time, most, if not all of my clients are professional money managers, my personal clients. Um, my company though, and I have two former clients who coach for me now. Oh, wonderful. Um, we definitely have individual traders. And, you know, over the however many 16 years I've been doing this, 
I've coached a lot of people that are just, you know, running their own book with their own money. Yeah. Whether that's 20 grand or 50 grand or 200 grand or whatever. Um, and I mean, I certainly come from that world. Like, I mean, while I traded at firms, I traded my own money for, I don't know how many years, but fair number of years. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so I know, I mean, I, I certainly have an appreciation, but it's like to be an individual with a trading account, staring at a screen and making your own, you know, processes and managing yourself you know, as opposed to being in a company. Although I will tell you this, just as we said some of our stories, you know, some of my clients have, like I have one guy who's, who spun out his own fund out of a famous fund like five years ago and has a team of like 18 people, which obviously includes a couple of risk people. And they tap him on the shoulder, but it doesn't actually matter very much. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, leave me alone. It pretty much does what he wants, which a lot of the time works out, but not all of the time. Well, that's why folks do it oftentimes on their own. Restriction is not their jam. It definitely is not mine. <laughs> so there's yeah, mine neither. <laughs> so um, all right. So th this this method, um, the Shoal method, walk through it a little bit. How 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 does it work? Because you have to. Um, really kind of get to the kernel of the corn pretty quickly with traders. They have an attention span typically not very long <laughs> that I find, but I would think this this takes some work to really unearth the fears and the the, I, the disappointments um, and such. How how does this work? Well, it is it it is it again. It's totally dependent on the person. But I mean, the basics are, we know that our clients are having emotions and oftentimes emotions they don't realize they're having. And we know they are predicting future emotions and they're basically completely unaware of that. So we think in terms of how do we help them become aware, but we respond to the level of willingness. So if someone's really willing, we just go there. And, you know, frankly, most of my clients are just going to go there. Um, but we work with the person's resistances because we know from modern psychoanalysis that it doesn't help to just try to bust down someone's resistance because it's actually there for a reason. Like it was developed as a defense mechanism and there was good logic for it. But in short, we are trying to lead people to be able to answer what am I feeling and why with no editing and no judgment and accurate and be accurate, the real reason. And then teach them to leverage their desire, which is like sort of opposite of Buddhist philosophy. Like, what do you really want? And okay, now that we know, what would it take to get that? people don't actually answer that question they're too afraid to answer it really you know do you mean like i love to ask you know if money was no object what would you do mm -hmm. it kind of mm -hmm. frees that requirement sometimes or that limitation mm -hmm. i would say the limitation more often than not kind mm -hmm. of so do you have to um that, is that easy for most? I mean, do you just, their, their first response is typically the, the right one or you have to? You know, I was being interviewed for a podcast last night and it's not in the training world. And the interviewer asked me to help coach him through a decision he has to make. And I basically said that, okay, like if money's not the issue, what would you do? Then it was hard for him to answer. Like he had, oh. yeah, which, you know, a, a way of putting that, you're oftentimes trying to get the person to really actually recognize their intuition or kind of their true voice. But it's so obscured by, their, by our tendency to analyze, you know, and our education and analysis. I mean, I have another client runs a hedge fund, has been thinking about merging with a bigger hedge fund. And this is maybe two weeks ago. He's literally going through all the reasons that he should do this. 
you know, the other fund has 10 times more capital and they'll give him his own book and he can bring his team and he'll get the tell in his tone of voice that he didn't want to do it. But every word out of his mouth were all the reasons he should do it. And I gave him the weekend homework of like, okay, you got to figure out. I'm telling you, you don't want to do it because I can hear it. You're telling me all the reasons why it's a great idea, but I, I feel, which is nothing we use in the Shulman method. We use the feelings we get from the person as pieces of information. Mm-hmm. So he was giving me this feeling that he was rationalizing. So anyway, I gave him the weekend homework of, okay, figure out why you don't want to do it. And he came back with on Monday, I don't trust that guy. And I'm like, okay, yeah. you're going to close your fund or merge your fund into his, but you don't really trust him. I'm thinking that's a bad idea. Call me crazy. No. Okay. (laughs) So that's the decision tree. And when you have traders that are, uh, uh, you know, basing too much on intuition and not analysis, what's the opposite? I don't know if I ever have that. Really? Um, Okay. I would, ah, that's interesting. Okay. No, no. I mean, first of all, you know, the professionals all have some process, right? Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some lens, some kind of camera, they learn to view the market through. I will tell you though, like the job with them, if I, if I just had to say, what's a one sentence job, it is getting them to listen to their intuition. Because what is intuition? If it's really intuition, it's expertise that's gone from cognitive linear knowledge in your head to pattern recognition in your body. Oh my God, that's, I like that definition. That's what it really is. I like that definition. Academics, some academics will call it visceral intelligence, but that's what it is. It's expertise that's become physical. It's calm. It has, you know, a sense of recognition, but it started out as something you had to learn to do step by step by step. I, the only parallel I have is no, no matter what's going on it, it personally, or even in the market, when I go into my live trading room, it's very calm for me. Like everything else kind of shuts down and right. I don't, I could be sick. I can still analyze. It's just in the patterns that it's the most powerful thing. And then when I close it, that, that, that's, it's, I can go, the, the zone is gone. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of um, that flow, if you will. I get into it. It's really, really comfortable. I don't mm-hmm. realize I'm just rote memorization or muscle memory, whatever it is. That's, that's, that's interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, to the, you know, the parallel in athletics is, the thing they tell professional athletes all the time is don't think, you know, just do the thing you know how to do. Well, what is that? I mean, that's the, the, the knowledge of how to do it is in their body. When they first learned to throw a baseball or catch a football or snowboard, you know, they had to think. Well. So then the negative side that you're trying, you know, emotions or feelings that you know, we experience, especially in being wrong, losing money as a trader, as an investor, as a money manager, um, trying to unearth kind of the source of that and the puzzle to have them actually figure it out so they can fix it. Um, is there, and I know it's a personal experience, you kind of like maybe push that discovery process, but is there, um, I don't know, it, a, a shortcut? <laughs> Like if if folks are really in that negative space and they're feeding that, how do you get them to stop doing that so they can clear it and and identify what's wrong? Because that negative space can be, you know, self-fulfilling. Yeah, but there's this magic of getting the negative correct. And what I mean by that is back to the question of what am I feeling and why? Like if you go down that, well, I, okay, I miss out. And then how do I feel? And then I feel stupid. Okay. Then what happens? Then how do I feel? And you get to the real true bottom feeling. It's oftentimes freeing and empowering, ironically, 
it's a little hard to do. Uh, for one, that people just don't have the tolerance for feeling bad. But the, so the skill to allow yourself to feel bad and just be researching what the heck is this really about? Because when you get to the really, you often go, oh, okay. Either that's, you know, just because my older brother beat the crap out of me all the time and that doesn't apply or, oh, okay. That is something I could fix. Like when you get to the actual true why for you, I, and I, this happens almost every day in my coaching. It's like it snaps you back into the present in a certain sort of way. You, you kind of see it for what it's worth and whatever amount of historical fuel it's got, um, you put that in its place in a way, but it requires like following the rabbit hole of why do I feel bad and what's the worst that can happen. All these things that pop psychology will tell you not to do, it's hard to do, None of your friends will support you in doing it because they don't want to hear it and they just want you to feel better. Then sometimes it takes time. So you oh. have to allow yourself to feel crappy. I for... like the Munger quote, 90% um, of people don't care about your problems and 10% are really glad you're having them or something. Like <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Most people don't care. Yeah, right, right. That's probably, it's true. Um, I think I had one this week, I'm trying to think. But I mean, I, it happens all the time where I lead people through this to the real why of whatever the feeling stupid or disappointed or embarrassed or, and then they go, oh, I didn't even realize it was really that. And just that much, like exposing the real thing because remember your brain is predicting based on past experience and it's particularly predicting a feeling but you don't know it when you do know it you go oh is that really true or not or okay most of that is from this past experience or oh i could do this differently this next time and then it would turn out differently so you really, you don't really care what their process is mechanically, or I should say, you know, technically for trading the results you I'm, you know, they care about. And when they suffer, they seek you out or higher performance because of, you know, bigger challenges. So do you, um, you really just are very concerned with their feelings. <laughs> I mean, you're not, you're not getting into the weeds with any particular style of trading approach, that kind of thing. So how many of, how big a role does confidence play? Do you size it up? You know, cockiness, confidence, oh, that fine line. Yeah, yeah, it plays a huge role. Now the truth is one can perform well when they're not confident, that is possible, but only if they like understand that they can use their fear or frustration to help them. But, you know, Generally speaking, feeling optimistic, which is a variation on confidence, is important. You know, believing that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll get the thing you want, believing it will work. But what most people don't realize is they have conflicts around those beliefs. Like, do I really believe that this? strategy for the market works. Well, I sort of believe it. You know, I know this person who makes money doing it this way, but am I really sure? Do I really believe they make money? Do I think it will work for me? Like I spend a fair amount of time, even with my professionals, uncovering conflicts they don't know they have. Um, they think this and they think that, you know, and those two things are in conflict as to what it'll mean to the market. And so I'll try to help them just, if nothing else, just realize, wait a minute, you have two completely, you know, conflictual trains of thought here. And then you wonder why you can't get big in the position or you can't hold on to the position. Well, you're not completely confident or to use the hedge fund world, convicted hedge okay. fund word. So then that leads to a question, talk of the difference between risk and uncertainty. <laughs> well, that, that 
academic definition is that risk is what you have when you roll the dice. You know, there are only a certain number of outcomes. There's only a certain number of outcomes in chess. Poker is uncertain. There's all the cards and then there's the how will the people play the cards and there's no, there's no black and white, you know, way for how people will play the cards. So risk is definable, like mathematically, you know, one out of six or whatever the dice is. Uncertainty is when you can't actually calculate the real odds because there's people involved doing things, changing the situation. No matter how many times you roll, you know, two die, there's still going to be X number of combinations. No matter how many times you play chess, even as complicated as it is, there's still a limited number. Like a computer can do every chess move there is, right? And every, I mean, we can't do it. But when you play poker, the cards mean something, but the cards don't win. It's the human reaction to the cards. So I have a, a I, I, for me anyway, um, I don't play poker, but I do count cards. Meaning if they're three out of five or better, the probabilities are better for the trade. Another, if they align, like if I have five as a criteria, I wanna see at least three out of five and mm -hmm. then I have higher conviction. So right. that might be the way that I minimize uncertainty, but I'm not, you know, uncertain more than 60 percent <laughs> so, but okay so this defined risk versus you know counting cards for lack of a better term um that's you know the what folks are doing maybe intuitively without a real decision tree do you are are you trying to give them a decision tree and definition to kind of weigh so they're better I, at it. So I never at. try to give them an actual decision. I mean, I talk them through it. But, you know, client to client to client, right? They have completely different processes and completely different things they look at in the market in completely different ways. You know, I have long, short equity in the hedge fund world, meaning, you know, you've got, you can be long X amount of dollars and short X amount of dollars. I have long short equity that's market neutral, which meaning those are supposed to offset each other. You know, I have global macro guys who focus on currencies. I have global macro guys who kind of focus on commodities. You know, I have emerging markets where they only invest in stocks in Egypt and other crazy countries. I mean, and they, so they all have their own. I mean, there's a million different ways to make money in the market. You and the gotta, trick is not to lose it. Well, number one trick is not to lose it. Number two trick is to figure out a way that makes sense to you. And the way you do that is learn it from somebody who has credibility and makes sense to you. But in the end, it's gotta be like your sport. You've gotta understand, you know, the market's like surfing, sailing, baseball, whatever. Like you need some, I tell people, sit down on a Saturday afternoon and write out what the heck are the markets and what makes them move. But market, but, uh like in general, but specifically they, the narrative changes or, or the, the edge I like to say moves. So constantly trying to find the edge in the market means it's always moving. That's actually what thrills me about it. <laughs> like that's why, like my passion is to find the moving edge. <laughs> that's, that's the challenge. Well, that's like, okay, so you're a surfer and the waves and the water Absolutely. and the wind and the weather switching up. And you're finding out, you know, what's driving what right now that you got to jump on your board. Um, or are they even good conditions to surf, period? Well, exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. But all I'm saying is like people, individual traders have a tendency to think, you know, there is some magic bullets. And it, it's, if there is, it's understanding the market in your own words. Like, and then understanding yourself and marrying the two. Love that. Know thyself. Keep trying to figure out the market. But yeah, but, but putting it in your own words, perception is reality. That's where you're going to follow for your, with your trades. Absolutely. So you mentioned, you know, I, I you kept saying I have like macro guys. I have <laughs> long, short hedge fund guys. I have, 
you know, Forex guys, why are the women? <laughs> like, where, oh gosh. No, we have to talk about this because this is one of the things that irritates me. And I mean, you want to ask me, what am I angry about? It's, it's, you know, early on was, you know, I wanted to see what I could be and couldn't find very many women doing it. And when I was looking for mentors early on and I would fly wherever um, and, and just kind of like over look shadow a mentor just to see how it all worked. Now it's definitely changing, but very slow, as you know, in the industry and it's very, very, very slow in the industry. And I know that you, you know, you've talked about, you know, there's, I don't know how you feel about this, but I want to ask, where are the women in finance and trading? <laughs> Majoring in psychology. Um, and that's the true answer. I'll tell you what, like, honestly, high school and college, like very few teenage girls think or know are informed that like the markets are really about predicting people. Granted, using numbers, mm -hmm. but that it's a human social game, not unlike psychology. So they think it's just like, you know, you gotta take financial analysis and that's boring. And they, you know, want to take more sociology and psychology and art and whatnot. And they don't realize like, that is what the markets are. So- Absolutely. But guys are fine taking financial analysis, you know? So one of my all time great stories along this line is I have this client who's had a hedge fund for his all adult life. He's got six children. You know, I think there's a couple left in their teens but most of them are in their early twenties. So he's been around for a while. And a few years ago, he's like, my daughter's a freshman at Columbia. And she doesn't want to know, she doesn't know what she wants to major and she's thinking about psychology, blah, blah, will you talk to her? Now this is his oldest daughter, so at that time. Um, so I talked to her and I'm, I'm asking her what she's interested in. And she's like interested in analysis and logic and people. And I'm like, have you ever thought about doing what your dad does? She's like, no, I'm like, why not? She's like, never, ever occurred to me. I'm like, I think, because she somehow was thinking the only thing she could major in was psychology, but she didn't really want to, if I remember that's the circumstance. And so it was like, help her figure it out. And the more she talked, I'm like, she should be a hedge fund manager. <laughs> and lo and behold, I didn't work with him for a couple, three years. And then he came back just recently, like in the last year. And he was talking about a trade they did last summer. And he's like, yeah, my daughter helped me figure it out. I was like, oh, I love it. Yeah. I was like, it, Tina, you see me like grasping. I can't believe me. you're disarmed with your, your, it drives it, me crazy. Like even <laughs> me, my father was a buy and hold stock investor who told me when I was nine years old that he owned part of AT&T. And I was so completely intrigued by that. Like, and I tried to get him to give me a hundred dollars to invest, but whatever. Um, I mean, if I had known that I could like major in finance and learn to analyze companies, which is really just predicting people. Yes, you have to do a model of like, what are their cash flows going to be? And then like buy the stocks, but I was really about predicting their behavior yes. and predicting how it, I would have like been all over it. I would have been, and I would have gone the path and maybe have my own hedge fund now, but I didn't know. I didn't, I, I didn't even know when I was trading, honestly, I didn't know like the path into, into being a junior analyst at Goldman or wherever, and then getting a job in it as an analyst in a hedge fund and then moving up and then having your own book. Yeah. So they just don't, the biggest problem is they literally don't know. And 100%. If, they, if they do know it's, it's misconstrued as a math thing. So I'm self-taught and early on, I thought the same thing that this was a math Thing, and I'm an options trader and I'm like, really, it's not math. So that 
was exciting to finally overcome that obstacle and mm -hmm. this thing that we have in common about restriction is you know not our jam i could study anything i do, do the macro the intermarket the technical the fundamental the quant the i don't care what the sentiment but it was all you know for me very freeing eventually to just figure out that oh my god i'm really good at this i don't have to have this traditional path thank god there are actually you know non-traditional paths now in finance which is right. you know but um if i same exact thing like if i had known i'm 53 well yeah i just turned 53 so <laughs> If I had known, um, had no idea that this would be my thing, this would be so incredibly my passion, like my children, like this was my thing. So because I just didn't think I didn't see anyone that was I didn't have the, the, the career path, the mentoring, the knowledge, forget STEM. At least now STEM is becoming, you know, more popular right. for, for young women. and. Um, there are some egalitarian men and definitely the Gen Z and the millennials. Oh, my gosh, they see much more of their partner as a partner. And then, of course, a lot of these companies that are having, you know, grown adult, you know, female children who are seen now as more competent and passing the baton. Mm -hmm. And I think there's much more opportunity in the future, but it's still been very frustrating. <laughs> um, and I just was. You know, I've, I've voiced that frustration sometimes on Twitter and it has gotten me immediately blocked. Oh my gosh, um, you know, talked over, belittled, et cetera, et cetera. And then I decided, okay, listen, I just, I still have to talk about this. I still have yeah. to figure out this, this puzzle and connect with women who also, you know, feel this. Um, Sally um, of- um, Krawczyk. Yes, Krawczyk of, of Elevate has, you know, has gone out there and, you know, there are others. I'm excited for that path, but it is still very slow to launch. And well, here's the crazy thing. To, there's a fair amount of research that show that women are better portfolio managers. And when you talk about intuition, you're helping these men to unlock their, you know, their fear and their, you know, disappointments and get in touch with their feelings. Women are intuitive by nature we're <laughs> you know very um i think also natural teachers there are some just kind of god-given abilities that are natural uh, i don't know foundation is there <laughs> well the brain research and other research shows that the more you're predicting other people and the more you know yourself the better you manage money on oh my a God, that's, on a, okay yeah. Well, women tend to be naturally better at both of those things. But we're also not very empathetic with ourselves. We're very hard <laughs> on ourselves. And I hate to categorize, but we are. I mean, it's just, we're tough, you know, on our um, feeling of self-worth. And this is not well, easy to overcome culturally. <laughs> the world is tough. I mean, the... You know, the, the the nicest thing you can say is women have to dance backwards in high heels. And that's the nicest thing. Mm. Well, I, I'm, I was interested in, you know, in your take. Oh, hi, Stella. Sorry. Hi, Stella. <laughs> this oh, is, Stella, you're very she does, she does this near five o'clock. That's actually my alarm that gives me a heads up that, you know, time's almost up because she wants to get fed. So, so what do you suggest? What do we do about this? Like, this is um, uh, your your life's work, working predominantly with men in finance and trading. Uh, how to, I guess, kind of elevate this space just by being you? That's awesome. But I mean, how do we get them to be more cognizant of the uh, of the need to bring them up, bring women up? Let that voice. Well, I really do think that young women, high school and college age women, really need educated that running a portfolio could be great fun. Never mind, you could make a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, and a contribute to contribute. There's the team, the caregiving, the taking care of. <laughs> We're also good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so you know, in a sense, supporting companies you believe in by buying their stock. 
So, I mean, I had, I, I have a client who's a portfolio manager in one of those gargantuan, like over a trillion dollar firms. And he was telling me today, like he was actually lamenting the difficulty with keeping female analysts. That. Because they sort of, he said he had two in the past five years who um, kind of ended up not wanting to run their own book because they, they kind of didn't think they were doing the world enough good. And he's frustrated with that. You know, it's hard to find a, a good female analyst to begin with. And then you find one and they're really good. And then they don't want to stay because they don't see a purposeful future. And I think that's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what it means to run a book and what you can do if you run a book. Um, I mean, the impact that you can actually have on the world, you know, just if by nothing else, virtue of the money you make that you can, you know, then spread around. Um, but you also can invest in the companies you believe in, like, which is a positive. Maybe, maybe you're an ant in the anthill of investing in the companies you believe in, but it's still something and it's the way it works, right? Like, so there's, I just think that, Young women kind of don't get it oftentimes. Now, there is plenty of chauvinism and all of that. And the same client was telling me about a woman, young woman who works for him who he thinks is fabulous and like the most brilliant analyst he's ever had. But she, until she came to work for him, she had bad performance ratings within the firm. And it made no sense. She came out of Goldman, so she got this great training. And we actually had a conversation about when maybe some other guy she worked for just, you know, couldn't cope with such a smart young female and gave her bad performance ratings. And now, she, you know, she's got that. So and there are a couple of women in finance on Twitter who are really trying to, you know, but push, it, it, but... The, the the voice of women is still relatively um not it isn't relatively it's very small and those regardless whether loud or soft um i have this you know running mantra that there is no meritocracy without the voice of women so there needs to be that representation in in financial decision making not just in the home not just in a you know a book of a, a hedge fund book um, corporate boards so this is um, just kind of interesting because the whole concept of getting somewhere, <laughs> uh, you know, myself included, is all by my, all by my lonesome. Like, it, it, that's how it feels. And I hate for women to feel that way. And then I see the she session that's happened in the past year because of COVID, right? Childcare is definitely um, not equally distributed and production is, is valued much more than reproduction in American culture. So this has been a tough thing to kind of balance um, administratively. We might have a change, but long story short, there's just been a huge impact on women's wealth, um, especially in, in the past year. And the numbers of women who have opened trading accounts is greater than men in the past mm. year, mm. which also makes me worried because they're new to the, the business and they, you know, that whole Bitcoin and, and the, the, the liquidity driving this market. And then all of a sudden they're like, everything starts to chop around and volatility comes in and any new trader, male or female, is getting handed their head in some of this right. volatility. So I worry about the women out there <laughs> who, yeah. you know, who are new to this space, but I'm also excited because they're taking um, the steps to you know close that gap. It's not just income gap, it's wealth inequality yeah. is much, much bigger. So Well, there's no reason that an independent female trading her own account can't do as well as any man. And generally, there's probably reason to believe they can do better over time. Women tend to be a little bit less uh, driven by fear of missing out. So if nothing else, they don't get it. They tend to get a little less involved in stupid stuff for the wrong reasons. To See, be fair, wanted, very general, but. No, but I wanted to ask that. What are some of the characteristics of, um, you know, a, a woman analyst? or trader, specifically trader, because obviously that's kind of my focus, um, that good or bad, 
but in regards to general characteristics, I know your data set isn't so large just because the nature of yeah, it's yeah. Um, and and but yeah, share, share and, and how to overcome some of that stuff because I think there the encouragement is not to give up, but well, you know, the, the rap the rap is that you know women won't take the risk. But that's also sort of the benefit. Like that's probably somewhat true is they generally tend not to take the gargantuan risks. Um, but they also don't take the stupid risks as much, you know. They want to know, they want to have a rationale and they're pretty good at sticking to their rationales. Um, and they generally tend not to get swayed as much. Um, it does remind me when I was at that first electronic trading group, the guy who ran it, his name was Bob Cantor, uh, called me in one day and he said, you have the best instincts I've ever seen, but I don't think a woman can trade. I'm like, Bob, I mean, I, we had, I was like, Bob, what is the point of this conversation? <laughs> is that a compliment? Or like, how should I, what are, what are you trying to one. say? What are you trying to say here? Like, why am I here? And I, I guess he was trying to illustrate that I really did have the best instincts because he didn't think I was even possible. Like that was what ultimately came out of that. And then, and then he told me, by the way, but I was too conservative. That's what he was trying to tell me. Okay. I didn't. So I like went back to my desk and the next day he called me and he was like, buy 10,000 shares of Kmart. I'm like, what? He said, just buy 10,000 shares of Kmart. I said, I don't have enough money in my account. He said, I own the firm, buy 10,000 shares of Kmart. I was like, okay. And he said, buy another. I was like, he was trying to shock me in taking a big risk. Kmart was falling out of the sky that morning. It was, this is 1995 or so it was opened at six. and was trading at four and a half. So this is like- You remember, okay. Anyway, I don't know, if, <laughs> I, I, I didn't make money on it. We didn't make money. I lost money. It was his trade, but whatever. That, but I just said that to illustrate, best instincts, didn't think I could trade, thought I should take more risk. I didn't really want to take the risk, but the boss is telling me to do it. Like I thought it was a bad idea. But that brings up another point of there are times where I have let others get inside my head. And after the fact, I regretted it. And it wasn't just that it was a man. It was just that I let anybody get inside my head. But you didn't What do I really think? That's the question. Like, what do I really think? What do I really believe? What is my conviction about? What is my intuition about? Find that voice, you know, that's in your right below your rib cage and prioritize that voice over. And, and if you can't find it, then figure out what you have to do to find it. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to people listening. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> no, um, and, and this is this is why I wanted to ask, because I, I don't want to just, you know, assume that, and I, um, that men who have this, um, illustrious career have privilege and privilege is invisible to those who have it. So they have the privilege. They don't realize it's a turf. They don't, they can protect, um, because they already have the turf. So we're, you know, there, I understand that there, there is a change, but it's for the better. And I still keep going to that part where, um, it's short term selfish, you know, to protect that turf but it's long-term, you know, beneficial. The economy will grow, you know, it's just the, the, the meritocracy of decision-making will grow to have that voice of women. But it, it does seem like um, a, a very kind of small chamber of folks that, uh, that believe or want to hear it. It's just kind of, let's just, just do the job. So doing the job right now, you are, um, you know, sharing your your pearls and your insights um in your your consulting biz you did a book what 2012 are you going to do another one will there be some research on women traders <laughs> well there may be i have a book in the works but it, i find it's so hard for me to find time to work on it and then i get distracted with other projects i actually now even have a, a writer to help me but it's just it was i will have another one but I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, you have to be inspired. And it, like you said, it's, it's, it's got to feel right. So, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Let's just say, and whenever Thank you do you. a podcast, I listen and I know other traders who do because you always inspire and, you know, try to connect the dots. I mean, obviously this is your, your talent of kind of synthesizing lots of different um, feelings and emotions and trying to make sense of it when we're just too close or, you know, too oblivious 
whatever. Right. You do a great job of that. So oh, I really thanks. appreciate this, uh, this share because like I said, I have been uh, told via DM and email, this is such a catch. <laughs> so thank you so much, Denise. Oh, I really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Where, where can folks find you? And if they want some help, what are the resources that uh, you provide through Rethink? Um, yeah, so it's the rethinkgroup.net. Um, there's a blog on there that I wrote for years. I haven't written much in the past few years, but it's got archives way back when, you know, tons of interviews. I mean, we are doing a workshop here in Sun Valley, but I think there's only one or two spots left. So that's, you know, but I think there are one or two spots left. Um, Twitter. I mean, I, it really, if you compile all of my tweets, there's like a whole book in there. <laughs> I mean, you can leave out the tweets about diet and the tweets about billions, but like, you know, um, there is a whole book in there. Awesome. Uh, all right. Yeah. That's your, that's your, that's your brand. You know, there, this is true. And I have, I follow you on all those platforms. So I, <laughs> I appreciate that the free advice too, that you give, that you give out. And thank you very much again for taking time out. Good luck with your workshop and your next book. Thank and, you. Uh, and, and thank you for yeah helping to level up the playing field for women in trading and finance. I really appreciate that. Likewise, <laughs> likewise, likewise. Okay. All right. Thank all you right. all. Thanks for having me. For Have a good Memorial Day. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.